All right. Well, praise the Lord. I feel like it's already been good to be here this morning to sing the praises of the Lord. And we're going to get into the message in just a minute here this morning. But I kind of want to just take a minute to kind of recap where we are and to make sure everybody is still with me here. We've been preaching through the book of Galatians verse by verse ever since the last Sunday of October. And the main thrust of the book of Galatians is that Paul is writing to a whole bunch of churches that were in the region of Galatia who had had gotten infested with false doctrine. Men called the Judaizers had begun to infiltrate the churches in that region to teach a false doctrine. They're called the Judaizers because they would go and say, yes, you have Jesus Christ, and that's good that you have Jesus, and it's good that you believe in him by faith, and it's good that you believe he's the Messiah, but we can show you from Old Testament scripture how you also have to keep the law of Moses. And all of the rites and rituals and Old Testament commands that are given here in the law are necessary for you to be saved. We'll see in just a minute how in chapter 1, Paul rebuked them. He's called them throughout this book, false brethren. He said that they're preaching another gospel, which is not really a gospel at all because it's not the true gospel. And he said, let them be accursed. So the title of the series is Rebuking Legalism. The word legalism, I think we're all getting to the point where now we know what we mean when we talk about legalism. It has to do with the phrase to rule or the law. So one who is a legalist says we have to look by the very strict letter of the law. And biblically speaking, the clearest definition is someone who says we have to look at Old Testament law and keep all of those rules and regulations as a way to earn our salvation and as a way to to earn favor with God. Now, legalism, apart from that main definition, could also be given to someone who's very focused on the outward and on rigid rules, and they're looking to the rules and looking at the rules to make them right with God and more holy, more so than they are looking at the heart and loving one another. As Jesus said, the whole law itself hung on two commandments, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. My kind of personal definition of a legalist is someone who comes up with extra biblical rules, not just as a matter of preference, but they come up with rules that are not clearly articulated in scripture, and then they judge the righteousness of themselves and of other people by their very specific set of strict rules that they did not even pull out of scripture. So the Bible contains so many different genres of scripture. And about the last 18 months, we've been very, very heavy on the letters from Paul. And I think that those are very good for us as a church at this point in time, because that's where we get a lot of our church policy from. That's where Paul gives his strongest definition of the gospel, defining what a local church is and how it is supposed to operate. I think the book of Galatians is unique, even in the letters of Paul, in so much as nearly all of the writings contained within it are a line of argumentation that are proving his main point. So this morning there's another little section of scripture where he's going to continue this line of argumentation proving that the gospel is by faith through grace and we can't look at any part of the law, even a little bitty part, and say, well, I'll add this part of keeping the law 
to Jesus and to faith, and then it will all kind of work together. That's why the title of the message this morning is that legalism and grace are not compatible. Paul's going to say they're different things. You can say, I want Jesus to save me, or you can say, I want the law and the whole law to save me and earn my own righteousness, but you can never take the two and put them together. It's one or it is the other. And Paul really is such a brilliant, we would say, apologist. The phrase apologetics means a reasoned defense of the truth. So as he's writing, under inspiration of God, he's been saying, look at Abraham. Remember that Abraham didn't have the law, and yet God said he was righteous when Abraham expressed faith in God and in God's plan, and ultimately in the Messiah that was to come. So how could they possibly argue the law is necessary for righteousness if Abraham was declared righteous by faith over 400 years before the law came? Last week, he told another story from the book of Genesis and from the story of Abraham and Sarah. And he said when Abraham and Sarah made their own plan to take Hagar, who was Sarah's servant lady, and say, take her as your wife, have a child with her, they were taking into their own hands God's timetable and saying, let us, in our efforts, in a work of the flesh, try and help God out by bringing about this plan that God's told us about, where Abraham's going to be the father of many nations. God's taking too long. God's way isn't working. We can't have children, so let's make a plan on our own. And then Paul talked about all of the trouble and complications that came from that and how Ishmael was not the true son of inheritance. And if we are to go back to the law and try to earn our way to God through keeping the law as a way to get our own righteousness, then we're giving up and surrendering the rights of Isaac and the freeborn child, and we're volunteering to be under bondage. So on and on he goes, making this wonderful, wonderful argumentation that proves the doctrines of faith. And really, I just don't know how anyone can honestly study the book of Galatians, believe it is the word of God, and yet still come to the position doctrinally that we have to earn our salvation or that the Old Testament commands in the law are for us today. Any honest examination of this letter will dispel those notions from our mind. And the Apostle Paul has such a wonderful and rich, we would call it systematic theology. And the reason it is so rich and deep is, and the reason that it took 13 books of the New Testament for him to write out his theology is that he got it from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He spent three years, he reminded them early on in the book of Galatians, he was three years in the desert right after his conversion, and the Holy Spirit of God was revealing to him the truth. And as the Holy Spirit was giving him the truth, he was looking to the Old Testament, which he already knew, but he was reading it with the fresh lenses of someone who had now believed that Jesus was the Messiah and had been saved by faith. So after he spent all this time getting revelation from God and fleshing it out in his mind, he writes under inspiration from God's Holy Spirit and gives us 13 books, half of the New Testament, that is so rich and deep that we could spend our life studying out the theology contained in them, but yet it is simple enough that if we honestly study them, we can know the gospel. The gospel is simple enough that a child can receive it. I'm a sinner, and because of my sin, if I die in my sins, God will judge me. I will be separated from God for all of eternity. But because Jesus loved me, Jesus came to the earth. He took upon himself the form of a man. He lived 33 years, perfect life, never once sinned. 
but was crucified on the cross, not for His own sins, but for mine and for yours. He died in our place. And if we will freely accept this gift of love and say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I trust in you and not my good works. Would you save me? God has promised whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And that's His invitation for you today. Now, as we get into these 12 verses, just beware that we're very close to the end of this whole series. If it goes the way I think it will, which it often does not, I think three more messages after today will be through the book of Galatians. We'll do a little bit of individual studies and messages and then have another series that we'll be announcing that we'll be getting into in the month of April. But as I said, these 12 verses, he'll continue this argumentation that he's been making the whole time to get away from the law and to accept Christ by faith. Then next week, he'll get more into talking about how if we do reject legalism, we have been saved by grace and we have the Holy Spirit. It's not a license to live a life of sin and licentiousness, but rather it's for us to stand fast in liberty so that we may freely choose the right things, that we may freely choose to live by righteousness. And if we have the Holy Spirit, it will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Then in chapter 6, he'll pivot for 10 brief verses verses to do what he usually does a lot of, which is in his epistles, he's talking about doctrine. Then he turns to give very specific direction for how local churches are supposed to operate. Then chapter 6 concludes with some beautiful but brief and poetic verses about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that is our only cause of glorying or rejoicing or pride as a Christian is not the righteousness we attain by what we do, but by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that cross, the world is crucified to us and us unto the world. So then we try to live a life of holiness and righteousness, not for acceptance, but from a place of acceptance. Because Christ has set me free, because Christ has given me salvation, I choose to try to live a righteous life of good works, separate from the world, because I love Him. And for no other reason So what Paul says here in this passage of Scripture is that grace is incompatible with legalism. Totally and completely. They are polar opposites. If they were to meet together and go head to head, one of them has to win and one of them has to lose. There cannot be a compromise. There cannot be a system where we say we take grace from God but also add legalism and works to it in order to attain righteousness. Only one can be true. My dad used to tell an illustration that he said it's as if there was a path on either side that where people were headed through life towards eternity. And on the one side was the narrow, straight path where you have to go if you're going to get to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, there's one narrow road that leads to God, and few there be that find it. But broad is the road to destruction, and many there be which gladly choose to walk down that broad path. And in the illustration, it was as if a man came to a place where he had to choose and he knew God said, take the narrow way. But he saw everybody else going the other way and calling to him. And he said, I'll just wait to make up my mind. So he sat on the fence and he sat on the fence so long that all of the people walked by. And then the devil himself came and said, you belong to me now. And he said, wait a minute, I didn't decide to go your way. I just sat on the fence. And the devil said, I own the fence. And the devil owns the middle ground 
of refusing to make up our mind. And in order to choose truth, we have to reject error. And in order to fully reject error, we have to receive truth. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. There is no neutrality once confronted with the message of the gospel. You have to decide to repent and believe it. Or to stay in your doubts and stay in your sin and to die in that state is to be lost for all of eternity. Let me give you some scriptures here. We need to get moving. The Bible teaches us that works and grace are different things. Romans 11, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, what Paul is saying is if you take a system that is works-based for how you earn salvation, and then you add grace to it, if you were to truly add the grace, then works couldn't be defined as truly works. And if you were to take grace and say, yes, grace, God gives me the free gift of salvation. I receive it by faith, but start to add and no, you have to do works to go with it, then that system of grace can't even be called grace anymore. One has to win out over the other. Either we earn our way to heaven or we don't. Some people say, well, I received Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. Many people teach that. The Mormons will come to your door and say, yes, believe in Jesus. Receive Jesus. The Catholic Church will say, yes, you must be born again. But they both then continue to say, but we have to earn our salvation as well. If we don't do more good than bad, if we don't persist in achieving and doing good works, then we can't be saved. So then, how do you want to define this system? Well, 99% of it is God, but 1% of it I have to do. So we get to heaven one day and say, God, you were not capable of saving me because I earned it by my 1% of good works. You owe me a place here. Open the door and let me in. You have to let me in. I deserve it. No one's going to get to heaven and be able to say, I'm here because I deserve it. If we walk in the door, we're going to say, all of grace, amazing grace, all of God, and that's it. Now, I believe that God offers salvation to everyone. I believe we all have the ability to respond. And I, I, one of the things I don't agree with with what we would call the doctrines of Calvinism is that Calvinism says if you claim that you're saved because you chose to believe, because you put your faith in Christ, then you're claiming that you earned your salvation. Because you're saying without receiving the gift of salvation, God couldn't have saved me. So then, it, it, God has to irresistibly grace us. He has to save us with us having no say in the matter. And God comes to you and says, I save you. And you have nothing to do with it. You didn't choose to get saved. I think where the logic breaks down is that the Bible here and other places clearly says that grace and works are two different things. So I cannot earn my way to God, but if the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to me, knocks at the door of my heart and says, you must believe, you must choose Jesus in order to get saved. And I say, yes, I want you, Jesus. That's not a meritorious work that earns us heaven. God could have saved us against our will if He wanted to. I think God could have said, I'm going to send some people to hell without ever giving them any chance to get saved, if He had wanted to. But I believe the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, that we all receive the witness of the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, at the end of the day, God's not going to force you to get saved. He's going to leave it up to you to say, I believe. And when you believe, someone has said repentance or belief in Jesus is just like jumping out of an airplane, 
trusting that the parachute will save you. So when you say, Jesus, save me, all you're doing is throwing yourself at His mercy. And no one will ever be able to get down from going skydiving and say, Whoo, did you see me flying through the air? I earned part of that getting to the ground safely because I chose to jump. You didn't fly, the parachute saved you. So when you get to heaven, you're not going to be able to say, I earned my way to heaven because when Jesus said, take my hand now or you perish, I gave him my hand. That's not earning our salvation. That's different. That's just us throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God and acknowledging you have to save me or else I will not be saved. But if it's works, it can't be grace. If it's grace, it can't be works. What were the Judaizers doing? They were trying to make a tandem system. Some of the Jews in Jerusalem rejected Jesus as Messiah. And they said, we want nothing to do with Him. We'll kill the people who follow Jesus. But other of them said, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but we have to take Jesus and add the Mosaic rites, rituals, and rules to Jesus. And Jesus is not Enough! Acts 15, I know we've read this, but let's recap. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Okay, so again, with the text we're going to get to here in just a minute, I promise, at this rate, it's going to take me a minute, but I'm trying to get to the text. I feel like in studying it and in getting ready to speak, I'm kind of going... Again, with the circumcision. Like, don't we get the point now? It's almost comical that so much of the New Testament is given to correct the idea that male circumcision is necessary in order to be saved. But there's a reason why. In Acts 15, they said you can't be saved unless you receive the practice of circumcision. So yes, Jesus... But you also have to go back to what? The manner of Moses. Why was circumcision so controversial? Why was it such a dividing line? Why did he address so much of the New Testament to addressing it? Because circumcision was given in the law. In the law itself, it said you have to be circumcised if you want to be allowed to take the Passover. If you want to partake in the covenant that God gave to Abraham, it's commanded. So when they said, uh, in a region, a group of people that are receiving the gospel as adults have to now go submit to the custom of circumcision, they were saying, you have to keep the law or you can't get saved. And that's why it was such a big deal. And that's why Paul gives so much of his attention to correcting this idea because he's saying you do not have to keep the customs of the law in order to be saved. That's a false gospel. That's work salvation. And it's false and is to be rejected Verse 5 of Acts 15, But there rose up a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, if I'm reading the text right, I think there were some that said, you can't get saved without keeping the law and being circumcised. And then there were some who were believing, or at least were professing to believe, and they said, well, maybe it's not necessary for salvation, but it's needful. In other words, you're not righteous, you're not obeying the clear commands of Scripture if you don't keep the law. And that's why the apostles and pastors of the church in Jerusalem came together to consider it and to make a statement about this raging controversy. The apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us. Paul, in his correction earlier in the letter, said, Guys, 
When you got the Holy Spirit, I was there. I saw you get saved. The Holy Spirit's given to every believer. Did I come into town and say, start keeping the law? And when you started keeping it, then God gave you the Holy Spirit? He said, no, you got it when you believed. You got it as a gift from God when you put your faith in Christ. And here Peter says, guys, I've been out there preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And I've seen it. God gave them the Holy Ghost when they believed They didn't have to keep the law. They didn't have to institute circumcision in their culture. They have the Holy Spirit, the same as we do. And God has put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts. How? By faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what your last name is, what your skin color is, how much money your family has had. If you believe by grace, then you'll be saved. If you put your faith in Christ, He will give you the Holy Spirit and He will write your name in heaven. Paul then was addressing these Judaizers and was addressing this faction as he did in the book of Hebrews of people who said, yes, Jesus, but still the law. And he said, what you're doing is you're coming up to the doorway of belief. You're coming up to the entrance of the promised land. You're getting all the way to where you're about to take a step into the body of Christ and be destined for heaven. Yet you're being turned aside at the last second. Because you believe in Jesus in faith, but you won't get rid of the idea you have to add to Jesus and add to the gospel by faith. And this is what Paul said way back in chapter 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, meaning anathema, meaning condemnation and damnation. If you preach this false gospel that's Jesus plus anything, you are under the curse of God. As we said before, so I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that we have, you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Paul's going to reference in our text this morning in chapter 5 that some people were making a lie and saying, even Paul is still teaching circumcision as necessary for salvation. It was a rumor. It was a lie. It was not an accurate representation of his doctrinal teaching teaching. But what he says in chapter 1 and verse 10 is kind of the same thing he says in verse 5, in chapter 5, which is that if I wanted to just stop being persecuted so much, I could choose to please men. And I would say what's popular. And I'd go with what the people believe who have the power to persecute me. But he said in chapter 1, if I was preoccupied with pleasing men and women, I would not be the servant of Christ. So then the belief of Paul was, let's just obey the Bible. Let's just tell the truth. Let's please God and not worry so much about what people have to think about it. John Phillips said, we must not yield a single point. Truth is truth. Error is error. The two are at war. Any ground given to the devil and compromised is lost for nothing. It will be gladly taken and kept, which no such gift given in return. In other words, if you go to the devil and say, let's give you a little bit of the truth, the devil doesn't give you anything back. He'll gleefully take whatever you give him and he'll come back for the rest of it later. So when truth and error are at war, we have to stand up for the truth. 
And in order to fully receive truth, we have to reject the error. And thus, the people who believe in the error and the people who believe in the simple teachings of the Bible are at odds and always will be. John Phillips also said that is the great difference between the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament gave rules and regulations. The New Testament gives principles by which to live. When a believer starts laying down the law for another believer, you can't go here, you must go there. You can't eat that, you can't drink that, you must not wear this, you must wear that. Don't have fellowship with this person, don't read that person's books. Then we have legalism. God says we are not made more holy by piling on in a competition more external outward rules and we do not glorify God by flaunting our strict extra-biblical preferences. Again, I've said it a hundred times. You do for your family what God leads you to do. And if it comes out a little bit more stricter or conservative than I do, then I'm supposed to respect that you're obeying God. But if we take things we can't clearly articulate in Scripture and then begin to criticize everybody else that's wrong, and if we make ourselves known by how strict we are and how righteous we are, then we're doing what the Pharisees did. When they fasted, they tithed, they prayed, and Jesus said, all that's good and right and well, but your heart is far from God. And they publicly gave. They publicly prayed. They publicly let it known that they were fast, let it be known that they were fasting so that they could receive the praise of men. And Jesus said, you have the praise of men, but your reward from God has been forfeited. So I hope you enjoy the praise of men because that's all you get. In our text this morning, which we'll move to now, Paul is dealing with an apparent false accusation. Some were claiming that he was still teaching circumcision was necessary for salvation. Throughout the years, I've been a bit of a a junkie with political talk shows and radio and all that. Now it's podcast. And every now and then somebody will call into a show and say, how come you never talk about, and the host just loses it and gets angry and says, do you even listen to my show? I talk about that 90% of the time. Why are you saying I don't care about that issue when you clearly don't even listen to the show? Paul could say, you clearly don't even read my letters. Have you been reading? Have you been listening? Are you paying attention? Listen to the words coming out of my mouth. And I'll prove to you that what they are saying about me is not true. All right, everybody's still here. Let's go. Number one, Paul again addresses the circumcision controversy. Again, the controversy was there because the law said you have to be circumcised. So when people said you have to keep the law to get saved, they said circumcision now has to be instituted and practiced by you and in your culture, no matter what your age is, no matter what your cultural traditions are. Verse 1. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So all this time he's been arguing that taking the position of legalism brings you into bondage. It makes you like Ishmael. It makes you like the slave. But when you believe by faith, you become like Isaac. You become like the true heir, the true child, who through adoption can say, Abba, Father, you've given me the Holy Spirit. I can call you my father now. And what he says in verse 1 is that we're supposed to stand fast in liberty. Stand fast is a great theme throughout all of Paul's letter. He'll say, stand fast, hold on, continue in abounding, don't give up the ground you've gained, be faithful. And here what he calls them to stand fast in or to refuse to be moved from is liberty. 
He's taken you out of the law. Don't turn around and say, oh, the law sure looks attractive because it's not attractive at all. It's bondage. And if you go back to the law, back to the legalism, back to the law of Moses to try and earn your justification from God, what you're doing is you're getting all tangled up again with the yoke of bondage. Tyndale here translated, wrap not yourselves again with the yoke of bondage. That's the idea. It's getting entangled or voluntarily wrapping yourself up in bondage if you go to the law, the legalism, and the rule keeping over the relationship we have by faith in Jesus Christ. Over and over again, Paul has told us in this letter that sin and false doctrine are bondage. And they are. I have no doubt that hell wins more converts by false religion than it does by the work of the dens of iniquity and the temptations of the flesh about us because it comes close to the truth. It makes it sound appealing. It says, look, even God said this, but it takes it out of context and gives us a false gospel and its bondage. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now again, he'll say here in just one moment and clearly explained, he's not saying that being circumcised takes you out of Christ or costs you your salvation. What he's saying is that if you're circumcised, because it's part of the law and you're trying to keep the law in order to earn your way to heaven, then Christ can't be your Savior. That's what he clearly here is saying. He'll even say it in verse number 4. If it's done out of preference, if it's done out of cultural tradition, to have a, a, a baby boy circumcised is not taking us out of the body of Christ. It's only if that practice and custom is done in order to keep the law and try to, and in order to try and win our salvation. And to prove that, in Acts 16, 1 through 3, Paul went and came to, to Lystra, And that's where Timothy lived. Timothy would be his most famous uh, missionary helper and assistant on all of his journeys. Timothy had a mother which was a Jew and had believed in Christ, but his father was a Greek. And the implication in Scripture is his father did not believe in Jesus. So what it says is that Paul wanted to take him with him and minister to Jews and give them the gospel And it says that he took Timothy and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in that region. So Jews might be offended by saying, your mother's a Jew, you should have kept our customs. You don't care that the law of Moses says we were supposed to be circumcised. And Paul said just out of out of preference, out of love for the advancement of the gospel, let's go ahead and have Timothy submit to circumcision because maybe it'll help us where we go to preach the gospel. So Paul was not anti-circumcision saying you can't be circumcised and still be saved. But there's a reason for the conundrum. The reason why it was so controversial is that every Jew since Abraham had practiced this custom and God commanded them to do it. In Genesis 17, verse number 10 and verse number 11. If you wanted to be in the covenant of God, then you submitted to that sign of the covenant. Exodus chapter 12 tells that if a stranger was sojourning with the nation of Israel and he wanted to stay with them and to keep the Passover and in so doing really to be sort of a Jewish convert or proselyte, then they too had to submit to circumcision. But this was the problem. Circumcision was only practiced by God's people because it was commanded in the law. The law was now obsolete. To keep to seek God's approval by law-keeping is to make Jesus' death for our sins worthless. 
Verse 4, Paul says, if you want to be justified by the law, then Christ has become of no effect to you. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross and his offer for salvation is out there, but it's not going to do you any good. Because to accept the law and keeping the law as a way to heaven is to reject Jesus and his payment on the cross as a way to heaven. To claim righteousness by the law is incompatible with claiming righteousness by the blood of Jesus. To claim one is to reject the other. Albert Barnes says this, I now solemnly say to you that if you are circumcised with a view to being justified by that in whole or in part, it amounts to a rejection of the doctrine of justification by Christ and an entire apostasy from Him. He is to be a whole Savior. No one is to share with Him in the honor of saving people. And no right, no custom, no observance of the law is to divide the honor with His death. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a whole Savior. He's not a partial Savior. It can never be Jesus plus anything. It can't be Jesus plus baptism. It can't be Jesus plus going to church. It can't be Jesus plus giving away money to the poor. As a way to God and of justification, Jesus is the whole Savior. He's sufficient for salvation and we rest in Him. Verse 3, For I testify to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Again, if circumcision was practiced for justification, for God's righteousness, then what they would be doing is they would be coming to God and saying, God, judge me by my works. Judge me by the law. Judge me by all 613 commandments given in the law. And if I've kept them all perfectly my whole life and never sinned once, inwardly or outwardly, then take me to heaven. If not, reject me. That's what Paul is trying to let them know that looking to law-keeping and customs of the law would be doing because they would surely fail that test. For every man and woman who has ever lived has failed that test. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The law said, if you do them, you can live by them. But if you break it, you shall surely die. So the law was given for condemnation and for death and to let us know that we needed a Savior, not as a way to be saved. Number two, Paul plainly states that grace and legalism are not compatible. Christ has become of no effect to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Again, they'd be saying, I don't need you, God. I've got this. I've earned heaven. You owe it to me. Someone asked the MMA fighter, Conor McGregor, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? He said, whatever I want. I've earned it. And when we go to God on Judgment Day, you're not going to be able to dance around in front of God saying, I've earned it. Open the gate. You'll fall at His feet and say, I'm guilty, but I'm here because you let me in, because your heart is good and kind, and you've given it to me out of a heart of love and of grace. I'm going to skip some lengthy, lengthy commentary and, and explanation of this passage, but I do believe in eternal security. I believe when Paul says here you are fallen from grace, he's saying if you were justified by the law, you could be fallen from grace. But since no one is justified by the law, I do not believe we are fallen from grace insofar as that we're in the body of Christ. Then we sin and we fall out. I believe that what he's simply saying is that you're fallen, you're excluded from coming 
coming to God through grace if you're trying to be justified by the law. You can't get in through grace at the same time as you're trying to say, I want to be justified by the law. Grace comes through faith only. And to seek any other means of justification is to reject God's grace and to miss out on God's grace. Let's move forward here. Stick with me if you would. Verse 5. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So when we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit. And the phrase here, wait for, literally means to expect fully. Twice in the New Testament, it's translated as look for. So we have the Holy Spirit. We, through the Holy Spirit, totally expect and look forward to the hope of righteousness by faith of standing before God and being declared righteous because we placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So again, anti-circumcision is not the gospel. Circumcision and law-keeping is definitely not the gospel. Paul's whole point is that it's irrelevant to our salvation. It's not earning our way to heaven by keeping the law. And he repeats this sentiment often in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about being married or being single. And whatever your state or way of life, you should be content and not be wanting something different if God has clearly blessed you with with um, marriage or with the gift of singleness, then just accept what God has for you. Then he applies it to culture and says, if you're called being circumcised, then let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called an uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. So it's about the heart. It's about faith. It's about grace. It's about believing what God had to say. And your cultural background really has nothing to do with it. So you don't need to feel a pressure to switch over to the other side if you've received Christ by faith. Galatians 5, 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. The word here for worketh has to do with action. This is how we live. If we have genuine faith, that faith will be evidenced by the works that we do, by our faith being put into action. So, when repentance and belief occur in the heart, it leads to a change in our life. Not that we're doing the good things to get saved, but we do good things because we are saved. And the fact that our salvation was genuine is evidenced by the fact that there's some type of a change in our life. I don't believe that salvation could possibly be simply intellectual assent. In other words, you could know all the facts of the gospel, and still not be saved. You could know that Jesus is God. You could know that He died for your sins. You could know that He's knocking at the door of your heart, calling you to repent, calling you to receive Jesus. But if your heart is hardened against it, you could know all those things in your mind and still be lost. So salvation occurs in the heart when we genuinely believe, when we genuinely repent or turn to Christ and say, I accept the gospel and nothing else. And I believe that after we're saved, it's not that we'll be sinless, but after we are saved, we should sin less than we did before. Much of 1 John says, you claim to be a child of God? Prove it. You claim to be God's child? Show me something in your life that would indicate that you've truly become a new creature. 
And if you know me, you know that I've always said God ultimately knows the hearts. I may look at you and think you've got a lot of good works going on and say, oh, he's showing evidence of being saved. But some people will stand before the Lord and said, we did the good works in your name. We cast out devils. We fed the poor. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And I'm convinced there's a lot of people, celebrities, co-workers, family members, somebody who visited church, whoever it is that looks all rough on the outside. And we might say, boy, I bet they're not saved. But we're not saved because of how we look on the outside. And I think a lot of people we dismiss may have genuinely been born again. So God only can ultimately divide who's been saved and who's been not. But it still is in the Bible that faith worketh by love. So if you claim you're a child of God, you should look at your life and say, God, help me produce good works. For that's not the way you've saved me, but that's what you've saved me to. The reason you saved me is so that I can produce good works and live for you until the day I die. Number three, Paul severely chastises the false teachers. Verse seven, ye did run well, he says. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? You were doing really good. Who is it? What's their name? Who came in and disrupted you from being headed in the right direction? Philip Doddridge here says that Paul is referencing a race, as he often does, when he references how they were running well. And he says that the phrase for hinder you comes from a word that is an Olympic expression and properly signifies coming across the course while a person is running in it in such a manner as to jostle and throw him out of the way. So he said, in other words, it's as if you were out running the relay race. Your eyes were on the prize. You were looking at the finish line. You were doing really good and then someone came running right across the middle of the course, not running it the way it was intended to, and bumped into you and jostled you and stumbled you and caused you to stop running the race. And this is what very simply had happened in Galatia. They brought in false doctrine and people came in the way and hindered them either keeping people who were headed towards receiving Christ as Savior from receiving Him, or taking people who had received Him, yet turning their heads to this idea of legalism as a way to please God. Paul was so angry about this. He was very angry. In church, it quite often is not a what that hinders us from running our race, but very often it is a who. It's a teacher that sounds good, but it's not teaching the truth. It's a friend that we should have left behind, yet we refuse to, and they pull us back into an old lifestyle or a romantic interest that we get ready to follow because we're in our feelings instead of looking at the facts and the truth. And I listen to a lot of different people, and I read a lot of different books, and some people I listen to knowing I don't really like what they say, but I just want to kind of hate listen to it, to find out what's wrong with what they're saying so that I know how to refute it. But if that's our steady diet, it's going to affect any of us. And to new believers especially, false teaching can be very devastating. The phrase is, eat the meat, spit out the bones. So if you're listening to someone who has a lot of good things to say, but some that aren't that great, recognize it, use discernment and spit it out. Sure, eat the meat and spit out the bones, but don't try to feed on a pile of dead corpses. Because there's no nutrition there. And the Bible is our nutrition. It's likened unto milk. It's likened unto meat and water. That's how we feed ourselves. That's how we grow spiritually as we consume. Not the error, but the truth. And it blesses us. 
And yes, it's great if the teacher is gifted, if they're charismatic and dynamic and talented and they're really good with a presence and they, they help keep my attention. I like that. But at the end of the day, who cares how gifted the teacher is if they're not telling the truth? I want the truth. I've noticed throughout my life there's some amazing churches. Little rural churches in a rural community without tons of people around. But 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people go to this church. They're doctrinally sound. People are getting saved. A great work is being done for the Lord. And the preacher gets up to teach. And he's not really that dynamic. He's kind of soft-spoken and he may not have the funniest stories that he gives all the time. But God doesn't ultimately need our talent. He needs our faithfulness. And sometimes when a a leadership who's not all that dynamic and talented faithfully tells people the truth, the church responds to that and the Holy Spirit builds the work because it's not about the teachers anyway. It's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So beware of the teacher who, though he may be talented, sprinkles in things that are not true that will hinder us in our race. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. It's not from God what they're telling you. It's not the truth. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul often uses this illustration all throughout the New Testament, and even Jesus did, I believe. And what he's talking about, the leaven would be like the yeast. You would put it in the lump, which here literally refers to the mass of dough that you've kneaded out to bake bread. And you take the leaven or the yeast, and it leaveneth or causes to rise up and grow and spread the whole lump, the whole loaf of bread is is infected is is affected by the yeast and it, it spreads and it grows so paul says when we have a little leaven which often false doctrine is called leaven so when we have a little bit of false doctrine it's going to infect everything it needs to be rejected it needs to be dealt with and not allowed to spread and grow and false doctrine just like the yeast does false doctrine spreads It can spread from one person through the whole group. It can spread from your brain to your heart. It can bleed into all other areas of your thinking and get you messed up. And here it had infested an entire region of local churches because they did not have the courage to reject these teachers and to throw them out. And it was spreading. And at this point, Paul's anger was boiling over. He was jealous over God's sheep and for the sake of God and of the gospel. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. Paul says, I'm not there. I can't see it, but I'm going to show confidence in the Lord that you're going to pull out of this and clearly reject them and show the fruits of a genuine believer. Then he says this, speaking of again, the Judaizers, the false teachers, the ones who said you have to keep the law, you can't be saved, the ones who were adding to the gospel, adding to Jesus, adding to grace. He says, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. This is sobering. This is severe. This is a promise given by inspiration of God Himself through God's Apostle Paul. If you trouble the church of God, you'll be judged. Paul was not talking about himself riding around finding these false teachers and beating them up with his fist in order that they may receive the judgment of Paul. But rather he said clearly and plainly a promise. God will judge the false teachers, whoever He may be. 
it matters not. The book of James says, Brethren, be not many masters, for they shall receive the greater condemnation. The word master has to do with teacher or instruction. So he said, don't everybody try to be a teacher if you're not called to be one. Because just know that if you dare to stand up and claim to speak for God, you will receive the greater judgment when God judges you. And if you claim to speak for God, you dare not Speak what God has not said or God has promised. I will deal with you. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but one day you will be judged by me. I don't even know who the people were. I think it's been 25 years now, but I just remember hearing a story that one time on this church property um, that a, a mother had sought help for her child and a worker was trying to give the gospel to the child in the presence of the mother. Very simply, this is how you get saved. And near the end, the mother said, I'm not comfortable with this. I want this to stop. I don't want her to hear or go through the rest of this. And they left. And it's one thing to choose to die in judgment for yourself, but to stand before God and to be responsible, at least in part, for another person not being saved would be a terrible judgment to bear. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make a long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. For ye compass land and sea to make one proselyte, meaning convert. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. God has proclaimed a very special judgment and harsh judgment for those who knowingly teach error and lead others aside into the fires of hell. I honestly think within five or six minutes I can get through everything I have here this morning, so give me your attention if you can. Several men throughout the, the years past and recent have said, Pastor, if you've got words from God, just keep preaching, even though it's late. And the rest of you are going, tell those guys they're crazy. He doesn't need any encouragement to go long. He does that all by himself. But I, be, I believe that's the sentiment of most of us. I'm just trying to not preach a four-hour sermon because then we all get lost and don't retain the information. So let's wrap up here with two verses. We read verse 10, so verse 11. And I, brethren, if I yet, or if I still preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. Here it becomes apparent that there was a rumor or a lie that Paul was still preaching circumcision was necessary for salvation. Perhaps they based this accusation off of the story we read in Acts 16 where Timothy was circumcised. Maybe they said, see, Paul told him to do it, and Paul is still preaching circumcision. But here when he says, if I was still preaching that, then I wouldn't be getting persecuted by these people. Then the offense of the cross would have ceased. And the cross is a beautiful message. It's glorious. It was a symbol of brutal crucifixion and butchering by the Roman Empire. But because of the work of God's grace, it's been turned into the greatest symbol of hope and redemption the world has ever known. So the cross is beautiful, but the cross is also an offense. Peter said, Jesus Christ is a rock of offense. The headstone of the corner is rejected by the builders. Why? Because the gospel is exclusive. So then when God says, receive Jesus, get saved, or you can't be saved, that makes a lot of people offended who are believing in something else, following something else. And one may say, as the character said who is lost in Pilgrim's Progress, you follow the traditions of your people, I'll follow mine. 
My dad's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that sentiment is so very prevalent. I'm Catholic. Great. You come from the South. You got your way. I have my system. I have my priest. Don't come telling me what the Bible says. I trust my church. I'm not reading it for myself. But whoever you are, you have to repent and reject your traditions, your righteousness, your church, whatever it is you're trusting in other than Jesus. If you're trusting in the fact you're a Baptist this morning to take you to heaven, you have to repent of that because a whole lot of people who went to Baptist churches will stand before the Lord and not be saved. The cross carries an offense. It's a dividing line. It's one or the other. It's you're in or you're out. Acts 14, I won't read the first few verses, but it tells very plainly how the Jews, which came from Antioch and Iconium, this was the region of Galatia. Iconium was, I believe. They persuaded the people and they had Paul stoned. And thinking he was dead, they threw him out of the city and left his body in a pit. They hated him for preaching his message and for calling them liars. But Paul had no desire to avoid persecution by changing his message. His philosophy was tell the truth, speak for God, and let the chips fall where they may. All right, let me read verse 12, read you my comments on what it means, and then we'll be dismissed. Paul says, I would they even were cut off, which trouble you. This verse above any other verse that Paul wrote in the entire New Testament finds Paul at his angriest, his most sarcastic, caustic, sassy, graphic, intense, whatever you want to say. You'll never find a sharper verse that Paul wrote anywhere in the New Testament which shows his true feelings about false doctrine. I have no desire to give you all my homework step by step, but I will simply say my sources for this verse are Strong's Concordance, other Greek references, taking the same Greek word, seeing how it was used other places in the Bible, and a near universal agreement in commentaries and English translations. The phrase here for cut off in verse 12 means to amputate, to mutilate, and here it speaks of castration. Paul is saying if they really want to insist on circumcision and law-keeping as the means of salvation and insist on teaching you this and put so much faith in the act of circumcision, then I wish they would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So why? Why why would Paul write something so angry and intense and something we would say, Paul, that's not really appropriate to talk that way. The anger and intensity came from the fact that he cared about the truth and he cared about the souls of men and he cared more about people dying and going to hell than he cared about some people not liking the way that he talked about it. And I believe his words were seasoned with grace and they were from God and that this extreme language and example he's giving here was from God himself. So then how will we fight for souls? Will we? And how will we do it? Will we be afraid to speak the truth? Would we listen to those who say, well, say what you want, just keep it in the four walls of your church on Sunday and let us not be bothered with it the rest of the time? Or will we speak it loudly, boldly, and publicly and count on the fact by faith that God will defend us and protect us and He will surely judge the false teachers and the damnable heresies they would try to use to distract the church? So is there any doubt what Paul believed about salvation? Is there any doubt about what he believed about this teaching? Keep the law, keep circumcision and all the rights of the law to get to God? No, there is not. God's given us the truth. It's defined for us in Scripture. We must choose to receive it by faith and it's open to all of us. And the gospel is beautiful. I sure am glad I'm saved. Aren't you this morning? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless now as we have a brief time of music, playing and of prayer. The altar will be open. I'll be around if anyone needs anything, if anyone needs to talk about salvation. Lord, I pray that that would be dealt with here today. I pray that hearts would receive Christ as Savior. Bless the preaching of your word. Help us to boldly stand for truth the way that Paul did and to receive the scriptures this morning as it is in truth, the word of God and not the word of men. Let's continue in prayer.